Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that's serious about birds, but nothing else. This week, we're going to be talking about the white-tailed kite. Um, I'm recording in First Landing State Park today, as usual. Um, I will say it's a very noisy day in First Landing State Park. There's a... uh, race going on there's like jets and planes flying over the nearby army base is doing some yeah there's lots of dogs <laughs> the nearby army base is doing some firing exercises so um you know normally i like to record in the woods when it's kind of quiet we pick up a lot of bird noises it's you know nice and peaceful relaxing but you know i gotta record when i can <laughs> and also um, you know, I'm also just thinking as I as I record this with all this, you know, human noise. I mean, the birds are also listening to this human noise and it's, you know, interfering with their communications and or they're adapting to it, you know. They're they're maybe used to it at this point. So, um we're just going to roll with it. We're going to just record. Um I appreciate y'all's patience and um, you know, hopefully we uh do still hear some birds come by. There's some nice wind blowing through the the trees here, which is kind of covering up some of the human noise. Um, And, you know, let's still have fun. Let's still learn about a a white-tailed kite. But I also have um, some shout-outs to do at the beginning of this episode. Um, First off, thanks to Sarah, who suggested this episode. She wrote me a really nice email um, and also shared some of her amazing bird art. You can check it out uh, for yourself um, on Instagram at Art and Soul by Sarah. So that's Art, the letter N, Soul by Sarah with an H. And then um, I'm going to also, you know, link her on uh, Dirty Bird Podcast on Instagram and Facebook so that uh, y'all can find her. Also, a huge shout out to Diana. Um, Diana uh, wrote me a really great email with some feedback on the show. And she even gave the show a donation, which was incredible and totally unsolicited. Uh, I promise I'm putting all that money straight into more free Dirty Bird stickers for listeners. So, you know, reach out to me, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at dirtybirdpodcast. If you want some free stickers, I'll send them your way. We also have two new reviews on Apple Podcasts. Y'all... These reviews are so important for helping people to find the show, you know, it boosts it in the algorithm. <laughs> um, let me read these uh, reviews because they're actually uh, pretty funny and, and heartwarming. So first off, we got one from Pyramid Life. Um, 
I don't. What what is pyramid life like? Uh, are you Egyptian? I I, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so pyramid life writes. Found the Dirty Birdie No Home for Old Wren podcast to learn all about the bird I was looking to home. Then I spent the day drilling out seasoned gourds for next spring's wrens and learning about my old favorite bird. Then I kept listening while refilling the feeders, cleaning the gutters, and planning for the all-important winter watering hole. And then found a paper wasp hive on FreeCycle. I sure hope you're right that the wasp won't still be in-house in January. Contrary to what may be popular opinion, I want more pods about backyard birds and the common guys I may see around. Or maybe one of bird lore, like Cardinals mean your dead loved ones are back in town. So thanks Pyramid Life for that review. Um, I couldn't tell if it was tongue-in-cheek, you know, with the drilling old gourds, but I mean, I don't know, maybe Pyramid Life is out there just drilling away at some gourds. Um, And that's a reference to, you know, my uh, uh, episode on Carolina wrens. Um, Check that out. Um, I do have an episode on um, Cardinals, too. Um, So our second review is from M6768, um, titled Learning and Laughing. So um, M writes, I listen to this podcast at work and quite often have to hold in the laughter to avoid weird looks from others. When I'm not suppressing a laugh, I'm learning and it's the best. Anytime I see a new episode is available, I know it's about to be a great day. Thank you, John. Well, thank you, M. And you know what? Don't worry about those weird looks from others. You just you just laugh out loud and enjoy yourself. Well, thanks to all you Dirty Bird fans out there listening and writing in and leaving reviews. That's, you know, so important and it helps uh, keep me doing the show. So let's go ahead and talk about the white-tailed kite. So just to describe this bird, it's um, small for a raptor. Um, uh, it's a little bigger than a crow. Its body is almost entirely white, um, including its head and, of course, that white tail that it gets its common name from. But it does have gray on the outside of its wings. It also has sort of a black shoulder strap, um, which is a great field marker. On its underside, it has dark gray to black coloration on the ends of its wings. It also has some black right around its eyes, sort of like the black paint football players put under their eyes to help with reducing glare. Its feet and bill are yellow, with a bit of black at the bill tip. And its eyes are really cool. They are a very menacing-looking dark red to orange color. You'll usually see this bird perched in a tree or hovering in the air in search of prey. Uh, We'll talk more about its feeding behaviors in a bit. And you'll notice its wings are long and pointed. Um, Its head is relatively big for its body, and its tail is fairly long and often fanned out while it's flying. As far as its range and habitat, um, it has a very small distribution in the U.S. Um, There's like a band in California that stretches down to Mexico um, for its range, um, and then that band goes across southern Texas into Louisiana, and even in southern Florida too. Uh, But really most of the U.S. population is in the Central Valley of California. Then the range stretches, you know, out of the U.S., um, down into Mexico, uh, far down through Central America and into South America, going as far as Patagonia. You can find this bird in open wooded lands. Um, These may be natural grasslands or areas that have been disturbed by humans or human-associated animals. Think of like pasture land and parks. They also can be found in wetlands, too. And these are a non-migratory species, um, so, you know, you're, they're going to stay around uh, year-round um, in the area they're at. 
but very rarely they can be found outside their normal range. Uh, I found an account from 2010 where a white-tailed kite was even spotted really far outside its range on the Housatonic River in Connecticut. As far as its common name, uh, you know, white-tailed kite, that common name comes from its prominent field marker, the entirely white tail. But let's talk a little bit about the word kite, though. Um, you know, it, it has some interesting etymology. Uh, kites are a group of predatory birds that in general have longer wings and smaller beaks and talons compared to other birds of prey, like, you know, hawks and eagles. They're not a natural group, meaning that they were grouped together based on appearance, you know, back in the old days of taxonomy. Um, but modern genetics have shown that their similarities have more to do with convergent evolution than all kites being closely related. One thing I instantly thought of when, you know, researching the origin of the name kite um, for these birds was, which came first, the bird or the toy? Uh, it appears that the word for the bird actually came first, derived from the Old English word kaita. Um, this word kaita uh, may be an imitation of the bird's call or the Aryan root scut, which means to shoot or go swiftly. Um, anyway, uh, these birds were certainly being called kites by the 1500s because we see it used also applying to predatory people um, who take advantage of others. So, you know, predatory people are being compared to the predatory birds, the kites. Um, and then in the 1600s, when kites, you know, the kind you fly on a string, were first introduced from China to Europe, um, the way they hovered in the air was reminiscent of the bird, and so they were called kites. The scientific name for the white-tailed kite is Alanus lucurus. Um, it's not the most exciting scientific name. Uh, Alanus is a Latinization of the Greek word alenos, which means kite, and lucurus means white-tailed, from the Greek lukos, meaning white, and aura, meaning tail. I feel like it's been a while since I've had a bird where its scientific name is like a, you know, goes back to like a Greek god or Greek story. I, I remember some of those early episodes I did like kingfishers and stuff like there were some wild Greek stories that, you know, the, the bird scientific name uh, was linked to. So on to their feeding behavior. So these birds are rodent specialists, uh, but they are opportunistic predators, meaning that they will go after whatever food is most available and also the easiest for them to catch. Man, there's just like so much, you know, human noise just listening. You would think I'm recording on like a city street corner instead of sitting, you know, in the middle of the woods in a swamp. Um, <laughs> it's just, uh, you know, there's just so much noise. It just really, really penetrates the woods. There's still some bird noise. It's kind of far off. Hopefully they'll, they'll come around closer and we can hear them over the jets and ambulances. <laughs> Right on cue. So, um, like owls, uh, white-tailed kites do produce pellets with the indigestible hair and bones um, of their prey. You know, owls also are, are rodent specialists, too. Um, the pellets of white-tailed kites have a distinct spherical shape, which makes them easy to tell apart from owls and other raptors that produce pellets. Collecting and analyzing these pellets um, helps give an idea of what the kites are eating. From a pellet study analysis I read out of Carriel Sur Chile, white-tailed kites there ate a majority of rodents with only a few insects and birds mixed in. Olivaceous field mice, long-haired mice, and long-tailed rice rats made up the majority of rodent prey there in Chile. Of note, these are all native species. 
Um, this is interesting because the invasive house mouse and black rat made up only a small portion of the diet. The Norway rat, another invasive species, never even popped up in the pellets. Um, Norway rats are like notoriously, you know, they're big and they're notoriously like crafty, smart, terrible rats to, you know, have around your house. So maybe they're just like, I don't know, too smart for the kites to catch or, you know, since they're invasive, the kites like don't have the evolutionary, uh, you know, know-how or instinct to catch these Norway rats. This prey preference isn't the case everywhere. Across their range, white-tailed kites have, you know, different species that they prefer to catch and eat. In California, the Californian vole is an important food source. Similarly, in Texas, the prairie vole makes up a big part of their diet. They may also occasionally eat Texas horned lizards. Uh, I read an account where a carcass of a lizard was found just beneath a white-tailed kite nest. In central Argentina, a ground-dwelling rodent similar to a gopher called the tuco tuco is the main food source for the white-tailed kites there. In the pompous region of Argentina, guinea pigs make up a large part of the biomass of white-tailed kite diet, but you know, of note, smaller rodents are more frequently caught, but you know, a guinea pig's pretty big, so you know, you catch one of those and it, uh, you know, is a very large meal. Guinea pigs appear to be the largest prey that they seem to go after because they don't consume their prey on the ground. They pick it up and fly it to a perch to eat. And, you know, these, these aren't the biggest birds. You know, they're, they're a little bigger than a crow, so they really can't carry a lot of weight. Um, I did read in some other sources that they will eat, like, juvenile possums, juvenile, you know, mammals. Um, but, like, uh, I didn't actually see any like pellet accounts that found those um, um, skeletons uh, remains in their pellets. Uh, so I don't know if this is just anecdotal or not. Um, guinea pigs for sure though have been found in their pellet analysis. And like I said, the, the larger prey, while you know they might catch something big and you know it, it's, a, it's a great big meal for them, for the most part they are feeding on small prey items. If they do go after larger rodents, even with the guinea pigs, it's mostly the juveniles that they target. Remember, these kites have small talons and beaks compared to other raptor species. And so they might have difficulty subduing large rodent prey. Like, you know, a hawk, it goes down and hits a rabbit and just like kills it instantly. Like these kites, you know, they're a little bit more on the on the petite side. So, you know, they, they don't want to uh, bite off more than they can chew, <laughs> literally. Because these birds are such rodent specialists, it has been suggested that they may play an important role in reducing the risk of hantavirus. Um, if you live in the American Southwest, you've definitely heard of hantavirus. Um, hantavirus is spread from rodents to humans when they inhale air contaminated with rodent urine or feces and can cause serious respiratory illness. By eating large amounts of rodents, white-tailed kites help to reduce the amount of animal reservoirs for hantavirus and theoretically help limit the spread to humans. So one thing I also want to comment on is, you know, uh, they're rodent specialists. Um, rodents do undergo boom and bust cycles. Um, it, it's, it's paired with, you know, the food sources that these rodents consume. Um, and uh, you may have heard this with like, uh, with like lemmings. Um, so basically, you know, rodents will have population explosions in years where their food is plentiful. And then there'll be years where their food is not plentiful and the rodent populations will crash. And similarly, you know, predatory species that specialize on them will crash too along with the rodents or, you know, have to erupt, have to move to new areas to try to find new sources of food. 
Uh, this, like I said, happens with lemmings, um, and you may have uh, heard about snow owl eruptions. Um, they do this during years where the lemming populations crash and the snow owls are forced to go far south from their normal range. You know, this is, the snow owls probably hate it, but it's to the delight of bird watchers that get to spot a snow owl in, in the range it's not usually at. And this leads us to what I think is probably the fact of the show. White-tailed kites are sort of the daytime and crepuscular, meaning dawn and dusk, counterpart to owls. A lot of studies I found showed a lot of overlap in the diet of owls and white-tailed kites, especially in comparison to white-tailed kites and barn owls. They appear to overlap, like eat almost the exact same species uh, in the areas that they're at. I read a study out of southern Brazil that found both barn owls and white-tailed kites feed heavily on the house mouse. There's even some evolutionary features that are similar between kites and owls by virtue of convergent evolution. White-tailed kites, similar to owls, have vibrissae around their beaks. Vibrissae are specialized whisker-like feathers that help them snap up food, especially in low-light conditions. Like, basically, you know, they have whiskers. Um, you know, they, they have good eyesight. They can see well. But, you know, when you get up close to the food, um, you know, those whiskers help them to direct their beak real quick to snatch it up. They also have velvety structures on their wing feathers that help them fly silently. Um, owls have this too. Like owls, you don't hear them flapping, you know, the way you hear like a, a, a big bird flap, um, you know, while it's flying. Um, they're, they're very silent. And I talk about this in my barred owl episode. You can check that out. Um, but also kites have this too. Um, similar to owls, uh, kite stomachs have low acidity and their digestive tract appears almost underdeveloped compared to other birds. Uh, this allows them to produce pellets and regurgitate up nutritionally poor and undigestible bones and fur. A close relative to the white-tailed kite, the letter-winged kite of Australia, even has offset ears to help it detect and track prey through hearing, um, almost like radar. Uh, again, check out my barred owl episode. I, I go into these offset ears and just how amazing it is that, uh, you know, they can locate prey with pretty much with sound alone. You know, I, I think about like uh, Hunt for Red October, you know, with the sonar. Like that's pretty much what these birds are doing. I'm hearing some white-breasted nuthatches. So when they're hunting rodents, this is, you know, usually occurring in open fields and so they're very conspicuous while they're hunting. Uh, they perform low swoops and they also hover in the air. When hovering uh, they'll often face the wind so that they can remain stationary uh, you know just like a, a helicopter hovering. Um, their head and tail will both be pointed down while they rapidly flap their wings to maintain their position. They also hunt from perches but this is much more rare. Uh, from a study I read out of the Pampas region in Argentina, they do more perch hunting during the breeding season and more hovering during the non-breeding season. Um, this may be because during the breeding season they are trying to stay closer to their nests. So, you know, they'll perch in nearby trees near their nest um, rather than flying, you know, far off in, in search of food. They kind of want to protect their nest while they're hunting. Man, those, those nut hatches are going crazy. I'm glad we're getting some bird noise mixed in, you know, with the human noise. It, <laughs> it makes me feel better. They do have some competition for their food, so not really with the owls, you know. Um, 
the the owls and them kind of have like an agreement the owls you know they hunt at night and the white-tailed kites hunt during the day and during dawn and dusk um i, I did see some stuff that white-tailed kites might hunt at night also but um I, I didn't see any like strong evidence for that um but really uh it's um kleptoparasitism that these uh white-tailed kites have to worry about so um, caracaras in the southern hemisphere and ravens in the northern hemisphere are kleptoparasites of kites will we'll steal um, food from them. Um, I also found an account from San Mateo, California, where peregrine falcons were observed routinely stealing voles from white-tailed kites. So these peregrine falcons, you know, they're the, they're the fastest bird in the world, fastest animal in the world. Um, I got an episode on them too. <laughs> but they will swoop down and snatch prey directly from the white-tailed kite's claws. Um, this paper also got some really dramatic photos of kites and falcons uh, duking it out. Um, I mean, really, the peregrine falcon seems to be beating up on the white-tailed kites pretty bad. Um, check out the Dirty Bird Podcast Reddit page if you want to see a photo of this incident. If you live within the range of white-tailed kites, you have them to thank for, you know, <laughs> helping keep down the rodent population, help keep a, a mouse from coming in your house. All right, so let's talk about their reproductive behavior. As I mentioned at the top of the show, they're found in the northern and southern hemispheres. Uh, they breed during the spring, summer, and autumn in their respective hemispheres they are in. So, you know, uh, those are going to be, uh, you know, different in the northern and southern hemisphere, uh, you, know, you know, flipped. A large part of their range occurs in tropical and subtropical areas where there never really is a winter. Um, so they may only pause breeding behavior for a few months of the year. This results in a really prolonged breeding period, um, and because their breeding period is so long, they will sometimes have double broods. This is super rare for predatory birds. Most predatory birds only have one brood. There are some other species, such as the um, black-shouldered and black-winged kite, that do it too. Harris hawks will sometimes have double broods, um, but this is only when Harris hawks um, have another hawk uh, helping them out, uh, something called cooperative breeding. Um, I'll have to do an episode on that. It's a, you know, a really interesting thing. Uh, I uh, have talked about it in my brown-headed nuthatch episode, actually. Brown-headed nuthatches do cooperative breeding also. It's kind of a chance for uh, juveniles to like, you know, learn, learn how to breed uh, by, by helping out an older couple that uh, you know, already uh, knows the ropes. Uh, from what I could tell, um, white-tailed kites mate for life, and they also stay together as a pair year-round too, although in the non-breeding season you will see them solo more often. Like a lot of birds, white-tailed kites will perform courtship displays to build their bonds. Uh, part of their display involves the male bringing food to the female, with the transfer occurring in the air. They will often perform a courtship display such as lifting their wings or raising their tails while vocalizing. Then the female will spend a few minutes, you know, eating the meal that the male brought her. She's like, all right, thank you. Yeah, let me eat this. Um, and then if the male is a real gentleman, he'll stay perched near her and protect her while she eats. Once she's done eating, the female might decide um, it's a good time to build up the nest um, and she'll snap off a few twigs to add to her nest. They build their nests in the upper part of trees. Um, they appear to not really care what species a tree is. They have a lot of variability as to the height they place their nests. 
Um, I've seen anywhere as low as 10 feet off the ground to as high as 40 feet. Um, and, you know, they'll do native species of trees, invasive species of trees. I read a lot of accounts like eucalyptus trees they, they seem to like a lot, which, which you know, are um, not invasive but non-native, I guess. Females do almost all of the nest building. Like a lot of uh, raptors, they will use pre-existing um, nests to um, add new material to. Um, you know, you see this uh, in a lot of kites, hawks, eagles, where, you know, they'll, they'll be a, a, a nest that's already been built on and, and they'll kind of take it over and, you know, add more sticks to it, make it bigger and bigger and bigger. My bald eagle episode, I talk about, you know, these nests can get so huge that, you know, they, they're multiple tons. <laughs> kites, their nests aren't, aren't that big. Um, kites also appear to not be very territorial. Sometimes they can be found nesting uh, within just a few hundred feet of each other, almost in colonies, you know. They do sometimes fight, though, and when they do, they will lock talons in the air and fall towards the ground, um, only releasing right before they hit the ground. During the breeding season, the female will spend most of her time guarding the nest while the male hunts for prey. The male also does um, almost all of the feeding, hunting, um, while tasks such as chick grooming, incubation of chicks and eggs, and nest maintenance are taken care of by the female. So they have a pretty clear division of labor. The female will lay up to four eggs, which is pretty typical for a bird of, uh, of their size. Uh, she will incubate the eggs for about a month before they hatch. Their hatchlings are altrical, um, which means that they are born blind and helpless at birth and dependent on their parents to bring them food. This is typical for tree nesting uh, bird species. Their chicks are actually really cute. Um, they're covered in a yellow down that makes them look sort of like, you know, chicken chicks, uh, except with a more fearsome sharp bill. <laughs> it's like a, one of those, oh, you're super cute, but uh, you want to kill me. <laughs> Um, adults will also use the breeding season to molt. And like I said, they're not super territorial. Um, they will uh, communally roost um, even during the breeding season in like small groups, like around 20. During the non-breeding season though, they will communally roost in pretty large groups, as large as 100 individuals. As far as the uh, sounds these birds make, the main call you will hear uh, from these birds is a two-noted sea yark call. They also make a chirping call. I think this sounds a lot like an osprey. Um, take a listen to an osprey call. And then let's listen to that chirping call of the white-tailed kite again. And uh, when aggravated, also apparently when uh, juveniles are begging for food, uh, they'll make a grating kind of like grr call. As far as the population of these birds, so they underwent huge population fluctuations within the past 150 years. 
in the early days of America, um, you know, in the settlement of the Western U.S., uh, white-tailed kites were common, but by the 1900s, their population had declined dramatically. This was due to a variety of factors, such as habitat loss, uh, but also a huge contributor was shooting and egg collecting. Like I mentioned earlier, you know, white kites are kind of tied to the rodent boom and bust cycle, so this also, you know, feeds into everything. Um, when there's droughts, um, this causes decline in rodent populations. Um, and, you know, similarly, this uh, causes a decline in white-tailed kite populations. So, obviously, as, you know, habitat was altered by, you know, European settlers, um, you know, coming into Southern California, into Texas, into, you know, into Mesoamerica, into South America, and altering the environment, that caused changes in the environment which uh, impacted the rodent population, which impacted the white-tailed kites. Also, you know, climate change is causing uh, droughts to become longer and more frequent, uh, which negatively impacts the white-tailed kites. <laughs> I'm all for physical exercise, and it's great that, you know, they're having a fun run, but it's kind of funny. There's a woo girl that, you know, on a regular interval keeps woo. It's kind of funny listening to the woo you know, paired up with some of the bird calls, like, you know, I'm hearing some birds calling far off, kind of doing a repetitive call, and, and you know, the woo is kind of tied in with that. I, I wonder if the birds just think that the, the woo is just a, you know, a woo bird doing, it, doing its woo call. Ooh. I hope the mic's picking that up. There's some brown-headed nut hatches squeaking right above me. So, like I said, they went under some major uh, population fluctuations. Actually, by the 1930s, they were extinct in the southeastern U.S. and nearly extinct in their last U.S. stronghold of California. Laws like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that banned hunting and egg collecting helped their population rebound by 1970. White-tailed kite numbers currently are much better than the nadir in the early 1900s but they are still declining. Um, it's estimated that they have declined by 36% from 1970 to 2014. The estimated breeding population is currently at 2 million. A big move that can help white-tailed kite populations is protecting grasslands from grazing. In California, when the Fish and Game Commission compared grazed pastures to grasslands protected from grazing, they found that the non-grazed grasslands had 10 times the number of raptor species. Since these birds are usually always flying or up in trees, um, really their only predators are other birds of prey such as great horned owls, red-tailed hawks, peregrine falcons, and prairie falcons. Their nests are at risk from the common egg stealers like crows, ravens, and, you know, mammalian predators. All right, y'all, let's wrap up the show talking about, you know, evolution and taxonomy of these birds. I appreciate y'all hanging in with me with all the, uh, you know, human noise here, but we've had some pretty good bird noise, too. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, the kites are not a natural group, uh, meaning all birds referred to as kites are not necessarily closely related to each other. They just resembled one another to early taxonomists, so were grouped together. As taxonomy has improved over the past couple years, um, especially with genetic testing, 
the relationships between kites and other raptors have shuffled around a lot too. I won't go into a ton of detail about, you know, the uh, taxonomical history, um, but we'll focus, um, you know, on what the most up-to-date data says that I could find. So kites belong to the group Acipitiformes. Uh, this is an order that contains birds of prey like hawks, eagles, vultures, ospreys, and secretary birds. Uh, remember though, falcons do not belong to this group. Uh, I talked about this uh, in my vulture episode, osprey episode, bald eagle episode, peregrine falcon episode. <laughs> Check out those if you know kind of want to know more about the you know evolutionary history of this order um, and the different relationships uh, within it. Uh, there's actually three kite subfamilies with our white-tailed kite belonging to the subfamily Alaniae. Shout out to Laney if you're listening with Casey. You sort of have a bird subfamily named after you. The subfamily Alaniae are all small to medium-bodied raptors uh, that have red eyes. This subfamily contains two other genuses in addition to the Alanus genus that our white-tailed kite belongs to. Each of these genuses only has one species in it. Gamsonyx contains the pearl kite and Chelectinia contains the scissor-tailed kite. The genus Alanus contains four species that span both the Old World and the New World. The black-winged kite is found across Europe, while the other two species, the black-shouldered and letter-winged kite, are found in Australia. And then, of course, there's our white-tailed kite. All four of these species are white-gray and black-colored with short tails and prefer tropical to subtropical climates showing that this was likely an ancestral trait of their common ancestor. Really, if you look at pictures of these four kite species, they look almost exactly the same, with only subtle differences in how much black they have on their wings and tails differentiating them. When you look at the mitochondrial genetics of the Acipiter birds, the Elaniae subfamily appears to have split off pretty early from other Acipiters. Secretary birds, those terrifying terrestrial birds of Africa, um, are the most basal members of the family, splitting off around 23 million years ago. Ospreys came next, and not too long after that came the split from Alaniae subfamily, occurring at around 21 million years ago during the early Miocene. Of note, there are two other kite subfamilies, um, Milvanae and Perninae. Um, these seem to split off from ancestral eagles and hawks a few million years later than this Alaniae subfamily formed. So Lenier, they're like the, they're the OG kites, you know, they're, <laughs> they're the first ones that formed. Some evidence of this ancestral relationship between Lenier kites and ospreys um, comes out in their osteology, you know, the study of their bones. Um, both of them have similar structure of their toes that allows for easy flexion. And also they have large keels and sternums. Um, these are like, you know, the uh, breastbones and provide attachment for the flight muscles. Bayesian inference models suggest that the pearl kite ancestor split off around 16 million years ago and that the Alanus genus didn't differentiate from the scissor-tailed kite ancestor until about 15 million years ago. Right around the beginning of the Pliocene, between 7 to 5 million years ago, is when the four Alanus species began to form. This is also when those two Australian species that are actually the closest relatives to the white-tailed kite um, formed. This is interesting because, you know, seven million years ago, uh, when this split occurred, uh, the continents were pretty much already at their modern day positions. So how the hell did the common ancestor for the Australian and American kite species, you know, like 
spread all around and, and you know, differentiate, I, I guess. Um, I don't really have a good answer for this. Uh, I could only find one paper from 2020 that described the evolutionary relationships among the Alanus kites. It doesn't comment on, on this at all. Uh, I do know that the Alanus uh, genus is kind of relatively new. Um, uh, back in the day, all the those four Alanus species um, were all kind of just grouped together as one species and, you know, thought of as, you know, the different ones were all subspecies. You know, now they they all have species right in their in their own. So I don't know, maybe, you know, they were able to spread really well. The common ancestor was, you know, even though they're non-migratory now and don't really fly long distances, they, they, I guess they have the potential for it. And in the past, you know, they were able to spread continent to continent and, and uh, you know, eventually speciated. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a weird, weird thing. It's obviously an area that more research needs to be done. There are two subspecies of white-tailed kites. Again, I couldn't find a ton of uh, research or information on these, but um, it appears the subspecies dubbed Alanus lucurus magiscolus. Uh, magiscolus means large. They seem to have a larger distribution being found across North America and uh, I believe in Mesoamerica too. The other subspecies, Alanus lucurus lucurus, appears confined only to South America. I read one source that said that they were separated by the Amazon basin. Uh, this may be the natural barrier that led to their uh, subspeciation. So that's all I got for you guys. Thanks for hanging in. You know, wow, there's a lot of grackle noise, a lot of bird noise right now. This is wonderful. I apologize for all the human noise throughout the episode, but like I said, you know, the birds were hearing this human noise too. So, you know, maybe we kind of put ourselves in the, uh, position of birds who have to put up with our lawn mowers and our jets and our cars all the time. Uh, thank you so much to everybody that's been writing into the podcast, leaving reviews, spreading the dirty bird love. Remember, uh, I will send you free stickers. Just reach out to me. And as always, stay dirty, fellow birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with my rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, everybody. The Dirty Bird theme song is by Ricky Pistone. Check out his groovy and hilarious music videos on YouTube. The outro music you're listening to right now is a song New York Redneck by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. The Dirty Bird Podcast logo is by the very talented TJ Ranoski. And of course, a shout out to my beautiful wife, Lauren, who created my original logo. Check out the show notes for this episode for a full list of credits for any bird calls or sounds used in the episode. Thanks for listening. Jungle, I might get into a little rumble. Ain't